State Representative Margo McNeil has represented North St. Louis County in the Missouri House for eight years. And as term limits loom, she's ending her tenure by going to the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. The Democratic official joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, you no, know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in St. Louis is... Joe Manis. A reporter with St. Louis Public, Public Radio. <laughs> finishing I'm, her sentence. I'm still stunned. <laughs> Too many things going on today. And uh, joining us as our special guest, we have in studio... Um, Marco McNeil, state representative from the 69th district. A, a Democrat. You represent uh, North Saint, part of North St. Louis County? Yes, uh, parts of Florissant, Hazelwood, and unincorporated St. Louis County. So you're among the veterans. I've been in the legislature eight years. Yes. And uh, when I came in, we had uh, 92 Republicans and 72 Democrats. Yeah. So we thought that was really uh, the minority minority, but uh, it has changed. We'll get to that in a minute. But yeah. before we get to your reflections on legislative service, we want to know a little bit more about you, kind of about your your upbringing, your professional background, and why you decided to get involved in politics in the first place. Sure. Um I taught in the Ferguson Florissant School District for 22 years, and what grade art, or what subject? I taught art, and in the elementary, although I'm certified K-12, and then um, ran for office the first time for St. Louis Community College trustee. Was elected in 2006, and then uh, when Clint decided, Clint Zweifel is was my state representative. He decided to run for treasurer. I been looking at that position and decided it was a good time for me to run. Not not to get too in the weeds here, but there was actually a point in time where Clint Zweifel was not going to run for treasurer when Sarah Steelman was running for re-election, when uh, uh, Matt Blunt decided against running for his own re-election bid, Sarah Steelman got into the governor's race and Clint Zweifel jumped into that primary. It was a four-way primary that he won somewhat narrowly. He became treasurer and that cleared a path t- t- for you, so to speak. For the state house. But, right. it, w- but it wasn't the, the easiest path, at least for that first election, because you had to face Hazelwood Mayor T.R. Carr. And we'll get to some of the, in- I was going to say intricacies, strangeness <laughs> of that in a minute. What was it kind of like that first race? Because I recall it was seen as a pretty competitive contest. Well, you know, I always, I was confident that I was going to win. I, you know, I don't know why I would be that confident because he was the mayor of Hazelwood for seven years and uh, uh, well known in the community. But it was something I just felt that I had worked uh, in advocacy role for a long time, and I had friends in the teaching community and in the women's community, and uh, I had labor support. So uh, I just uh, just went at it and uh, started knocking doors early and um, got a lot of support from people in the community. And the rest is history. I don't there think is. you've had a very challenging re-election bid since. So. Not really, although I always, um, you know, I think back to, nine, I think it was um, 
96 maybe 96 or 98 but a lot of women came in 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 that particular year yes and then the next year they were all voted out yes and so you know I kind of kept that in mind and then I um, also know with our unlimited contributions that can be given uh, the Republican Party could have could have stuck a whole bunch of money into my opponent's race if they chose to so I always ran really hard each time I ran because I I, I wanted to make sure I, I did win. And I also like going door to door. Now, like- what was your key message, your key message as you were running? But also once you got in, I mean, your key objective saying this is what I want to do. I want to do X, Y, Z. Right. Well, f- first of all, m- my objective was to try and promote uh, job growth. You know, we are in the height of the Great Recession and my district was particularly hit by that. And so uh, whatever we could do to increase jobs, um, I'm, a, as I said, a public school teacher. And so I was very concerned about education and felt like that was the pathway forward for people who, whose jobs had disappeared, getting the training they needed. And, so I, and then um, I got into uh, the green energy sector because I um, happen to believe it's uh, renewable energy is the future, but it's also an avenue to jobs. And uh, that played well. I think in 2008, we passed Proposition C that said we needed to have 25, no, um, 15 percent, 15 percent renewable energy by 2022. And um, and my constituents were very positive on that, and I think it's it's good for the country, good for the world, to to go that direction. Now, one of the reasons I was kind of jokingly hesitating about T.R. Carr for a second was I remember a few years ago he was appointed to the St. Louis County Police Board, and he marked in his application that he was an independent. And my first reaction was, wait a second, he ran as a Republican against you. That makes me think that he's a Republican, not an independent. And it didn't really matter at this point because while you had to have a certain amount of Republicans and Democrats on, it just seemed like a kind of an odd thing. And then a couple of months ago, I was at the first district congressional caucus. And not only was he there, he was a Donald Trump delegate. So and and this is also in addition to the fact that he was on the Ferguson Commission as well. So. I'm not sure if you experienced any of that kind of party ambiguity with him, but I certainly have seen it firsthand. I know that there was uh, some ambiguity when he served on Hayeswood City Council because um, the current mayor, Matt Robinson, really thought that he was a Democrat and was urging him to run for state representative. And then he signed up and it blew him, blew Matt away because he signed up as a Republican. Which, of course, uh, you know, Matt was um, the uh, county uh, Democratic Central Committee chair. Right. Right. (laughs) And I actually saw him this weekend, and he mentioned once that happened, he ran against T.R. Carr and and I think defeated him in an election. So I think think Matt Robinson was very, very pleased that occurred. Yeah. Now, um, as a representative, have you noticed changes in your district, either demographically or what the concerns are? Have the concerns changed over the eight years that you've been there? My district changed in 2012 because 
of redistricting, and I picked up a more more Democrats and went a little further north uh, with my district. Um, as far as the the interests of the district, they've stayed pretty much the same. Uh, my district has a lot of people who work in the construction trades, and those uh, the people in the construction trades and you know the Chrysler workers, yeah. they did not work for two years, so we were hit pretty hard with the Great Recession. There were a lot of um, um, homes that went into foreclosure, and we've had issues with property tax. Um, drops in property tax. So that's impacted the school district, and Hazelwood School District now is trying to um, recuperate from uh, the loss of local revenue, and the state has not been very helpful in this regard. Now, now, when you went in the General Assembly, as you mentioned earlier, Democrats were already in the minority. Now they're even in more of a minority. There's less than 50 of them yeah. in, a, in a body of 163 so as you try to get stuff through, or how have you managed to operate? Well, I look at my role or the role of Democrats as really to be a voice for, um, well, common sense, but to give the other perspective on the floor. And um, we have to, in order to get something through, we have to obviously have to work with our Republican colleagues and there were a number of different pieces of legislation that uh, I, I did work with people, you know, on the other side of the aisle with. And I was very pleased this year that we were able, I was able to pass uh, House Bill 2211, which was health insurance rate review. It was, it was rolled into another bill, but um, uh, Representative White and I both had the same bill. And uh, we, uh, Senator Sater, uh, was was good with with taking that on. The insurance companies and the advocates had um, had worked on language and had agreed. And so, um, but I think what what you have to do is definitely work across the aisle, and uh, you make your uh, position heard as as much as you can. Well, I, I followed the the House Democrats in 2009 when they had more people and to this point where they have very few. And I, I don't think it's a good situation either way because when you're in the minority in the House, unless it's like a really close minority, like, you know, the Republicans have 83 and the Democrats have 81, right. you're going to lose on pretty much every major issue. And one of the things I noticed is when you had more members, it, it was actually arguably more partisan and more party line because it, the votes were closer and there was a more struggle to kind of stay on the party orthodoxy on some issues. Now with less Democrats, I guess that there seems to be still that on some issues like right to work. But I, it also seems like the Republicans aren't as rigid about letting Democrats either put forth amendments or maybe even occasionally handle bills that are focused on St. Louis or Kansas City. What's been kind of your impression? It, it, which is which is kind of a better scenario from what you've seen? I my take is that it has a lot to do with who's in the speaker's chair. Yeah, because uh, I've served with four speakers, and our current speaker I think is uh, 
has been the the most amenable um, and uh, willing to work with Democrats. Uh, this is it, Todd Richardson, Todd, he's Todd a Republican Richardson. from Poplar Bluff. Right, and his father was served in the legislature as minority uh, yes. leader and um, has, I think, talked around their dinner table about the the uh, woes of the minority. And so he's a little more receptive to those of us in the re- minority. And, and I certainly appreciate it. I think uh, it's been it's been uh, nice to be able to present an amendment and and at least get it, it heard, you know, on the floor. And um, not necessarily that it was, you know, accepted or voted positively accepted, but at least uh, had the time to speak about it on the floor and to get called on more regularly. And there, there were other, there were some years, and, and somewhat this year, but some years we would stand two and three hours and never get called on. Who was the worst? <laughs> well, I don't think I'm going to go there. No, but, uh, why not? They're out of office. <laughs> well, yeah. well, two of them are. One of them is the most powerful state senator in all the land. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So, uh, yeah. We, they, they, I mean, each one had their own personality, and, um, um, you know, you learned how to, to deal with them. I found, um, um, you know, Representative Jones was, was uh, could, could be very, what I consider more extreme, but at the same time, he was, he was nice. I would go up, and I'd ask him if he would refer my bills, and he, I would usually find them that he would do that. At yeah. least would get them referred. So, you know, there. Uh, but yet, I also stood on. I, I understand there's a bad list, and I was often on the bad list. What, what's the bad <laughs> list? I gotta ask. And what got you on the bad list? Uh, I think some of the comments that I, I would make on the floor that uh, they. Uh, points that I made that they they found uncomfortable, perhaps. But okay, there, let's give an example, we, <laughs> Representative McNeil. Come on, <laughs> nothing lewd, but basically uh, issues that they that that's what we call on our on our side. You know, there are those of us who would stand for hours and literally hours and never get called on, and, and I wasn't the only one. There they, there was a list, apparently at the podium of who not to call on. Yeah. I, that's what I've been told. Uh, of course, well, they would probably deny that there's a bad list. D- or deny that, yes. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about is education policy, because in, I guess in 2014 and 2015, that came front and center with the transfer bill, which both of them were right. vetoed by by Governor Jane Nixon. And I think especially for the 2014 one, which yes. had a provision that allowed people in unaccredited school districts to transfer to non-sectarian schools, it kind of crossed this bright line that Governor Nixon had been Mm -hmm. very clear about in 2008. And that was, if you put any quote-unquote voucher things in a bill, I'm going to veto it. I mean, that was one of the things I think there was no compromising Nixon on. And I think when that was put on his desk, there was no question he was going to veto it because that's been kind of his consistent philosophy for a long time. And it wasn't only Democrats who were happy about that. There were a bunch of Republicans that were uncomfortable with that concept, too. So with that backdrop, what I have noticed is, first of all, you could have a Republican governor who's going to have a completely different philosophy. And while I haven't talked to him at this point, we're recording this on June 21st, I'm getting the sense that Attorney General Chris Coster is a lot less rigid on school choice issues than Nixon is. So where do you think the future of that is going to be after Nixon leaves office. 
Well, I'm, my hope is that uh, people will come to understand how important it is that we have good public schools. And uh, when you allow public money to go to private schools, uh, and money, particularly when money is so scarce, you undermine your public schools. Now, I have a daughter who lives in Spain, and they have three systems. They have a, a public school system, charter school system, and private school system, just like we do. And as she says, the public school system, uh, well, the, the private school, anybody who absolutely can't afford to sends their kids to private schools. And then if they can't do that, they send their kids to, to charter schools, the next best thing. And, and so the, the public schools are really left to just the, to kind of the kids that just can't get out. We have an excellent public education school system right now, and it is in the best interest of all the people of the state of Missouri to maintain that great public education system where every child can get an outstanding education or almost, you know, we, we have a few school districts that are struggling, but, um, you know, so going the route of vouchers is a very slippery slope, and I'm, I'm hoping that there will be those on both sides of the aisles that understand that and that will argue, argue vigorously against it. Now, um, one of the things I think many people forget is that there is a prohibition in the state constitution yes. about money going to private schools. So some of this talk, they got to change. Against religious schools. Yes. Right. Like, but the point is, is that um, there is very, it's, it's much more difficult to just send money than people think. Right. And I think that, um, you know, there is that tobacco proposal, which may or may not make the ballot. They submitted the signatures, but they have this little provision in there, and it's because it's a proposed constitutional amendment that it actually would change right. uh, the state ban on money going to parochial schools in particular. So my question is, because you're an educator and you've seen how some of the mood has changed regarding that proposal, as a legislator and as a former educator, Kind of, how do you see all this? Have you been involved in any of the um, talks or just as far as your constituents calling you? I, I have not had calls from constituents, and I myself am a big proponent of early childhood education and originally supported uh, that ballot measure. But um, I know Missouri NEA initially took a, a neutral position. They've since come out in opposition, and I think... Actually, I just your statement to me right now is the first that I knew about the language that would would change it constitutionally, and I can absolutely see why uh, educators would not want that that provision taken out of the constitution. And so, um, you know, it uh, there also is an, uh, another clause that would affect uh, research in yes. stem cell kinds of research. And so um, I think the original intent was was good, but they uh, were, they just went the wrong direction. And, you know, it is important what, what the language in a bill is, is very important. Now, um, as a woman legislator, you also were been, 
there during some of the huge controversy, especially at the end of former Speaker John Deal's mm-hmm. early departure um, over alleged um, improprieties with interns, uh, mis- alleged mistreatment of women, either staff members or disrespect towards legislators. Claire McCaskill, who's now the U.S. Senator, was one who talked about incidents that happened to her when she was in the state house. Mm-hmm. And then we also had 30 years state ago. Senator Paul Lavota, the former right. House Minority Leader, right. have to resign over allegations that he acted inappropriately among right. interns. And we had Don Gosen, while it was not an intern-related situation, had to resign due mm-hmm. to a, an extramarital affair. Well, he didn't have to, but he chose to. Yes, but continue. Okay, show. so my point is, what did you see as far as the climate uh, treatment of women legislators and staff? You know, the, definitely there is this sort of good old boys network going on there, uh, and it's a little hard to break into it. You, um, But yet... Uh, Jeff City is a difficult city because you are away from your family, you do your work, and many people choose after uh, the, you know, they've gone to the cocktail parties or whatever, the the, uh, receptions that different organizations and and, um, uh, groups like Springfield Chamber or whatever right. have have for us in Jefferson City, uh, probably tr- go to one of the uh, restaurants or bars in town and just sort of, you know, do a little socializing, and so um, that kind of thing makes it uh, more difficult, easier, to, I think, to um, to forget why you came up to Jefferson City and to and all. Personally, I found uh, they, they, you know, I, I tried to read my bills before I, um, before my committee hearing. So usually I would go back to my office and work from like eight to eleven, and it didn't do much of that. So I'm kind of out of the loop. Yeah, as far you're as not the first female legislator who has said that. In fact, we've had several of both parties who have said they don't in in the party scene in Jefferson City, and they spend most of the nighttime reading right. bills or writing bills or doing like a lot of work that apparently male <laughs> legislators are, not all male legislators, but some, some male, male legislators yeah. were choosing not to do. But right. I have a more, I've asked this question to a bunch of people, and this is kind of borders on like a, a psychological exercise, but do you think like the environment that you just mentioned is kind of transforming ordinary or good people into these sexually harassing monsters or do you think voters are just electing really bad people to office and they're able to hide that badness with slick ads or mailers yeah i i think that the voters are generally uh pretty wise and that they you know the the people that are elected are 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 good people that are that place themselves in positions that are compromising. And uh, so, you know, and the other thing that, uh, the, uh, an advantage to going out and doing more socializing is you probably will uh, rise up the leadership ladder a little faster, which is something if you spend your time studying your bill, reading your bills in your room <laughs> after session, you're, you're not going to build the same kind of, of base. And so those that wanted to go up the leadership ladder uh, probably found that helpful to, 
to at least uh, do a little bit of, of socializing with their colleagues. What so. was your biggest uh, dis- disappointment over the eight years? Either something that you'd really hoped to get through and it went nowhere or something that you tried to block and it went into effect anyway. I'm just curious yeah. now that you look back on those eight years. Well, for me, the uh, I had two disappointments. They weren't necessarily um, personal. Well, they were personal in a way. But um, the fact that we have not expanded Medicaid was was pretty astounding given the amount of support that there was in the uh, business community. A thousand different organizations supported it and the uh, the good it could have done to the people of Missouri. So I found that a, a big disappointment and I hope that there will be some progress on it in coming years under a new governor. Uh, the other one, uh, after Sandy Hook, the decision that the legislature chose to, the direction it chose to go in uh, increasing uh, gun rights rather than addressing some of the problems that, you know, common sense gun solutions, I found just very disheartening. And uh, I know my constituents, I surveyed them, they were um, 75% in favor of background checks and 65% in favor of banning assault weapons. So uh, I think the people of Missouri are definitely behind uh, uh, sensible gun control, and yet we're not doing that. And I, I, I still, to this day, I, I mean, it's, it's just makes my heart sad. And that, then now we've had Orlando. I mean, time after time, you know, we have more and more. But Sandy Hook was the, the real gauntlet for me with those, those six-year-olds that were um, pumped full of bullets. Now, um, as you know, as most of our listeners know, on the governor's desk right now is a bill that would, among other things, um, legalize permitless carry. In effect, it's it's complicated, but the bottom line is that in effect gets rid of the permit system for concealed carry. And I just want our listeners to know we're recording this in June. You'll probably hear this in July, so it's possible it may be signed into law by then or it might be vetoed, but continue, Joe. Yeah, yeah, so I'm just interested in your thoughts about that. I mean, as we're taping this, we don't know what the governor is going to do, but uh, I know he's under some pressure to veto it, mm-hmm. um, which would then set it up for the veto session, which you would be at, mm-hmm. to make some decisions on it. What are your thoughts? I mean, especially with the latest um, Orlando tragedy. I mean, what do you think the climate's like, and do you expect any changes? Well, I hope the governor vetoes it. I've asked him to do, do that. Um, I think the... Uh, permitless carry, allowing anyone to, to carry regardless of the training or their uh, training with the gun or, or without registering is a, is a very bad idea. That bill also had a stand your ground clause in yes. it. So basically uh, anyone can uh, shoot another person and just claim that they were, they feared for their, you know, their, their life or their were concerned about their safety, and the courts would uphold their right to to, sh- to shoot and kill somebody. Why do you think Attorney General Coster has not received more criticism from Democrats for, in the past, being supported by the National Rifle Association? You know, um, I have not been aware of his stand, stand particularly on, on guns, so I've been focused on that. Uh, I would... Uh, 
hope that uh, that he would also interject some common sense notions into his stand on on guns i mean he has said nothing pretty much about this bill and two years ago uh two or three years ago he did come out against the uh, uh gun nullification yeah the bill, gun nullification which bill. even the nra didn't really support mm -hmm. too I, I i don't want i don't know what their interaction were but in the past in 2012 when he ran against ed martin he was endorsed by the national rifle association over ed martin and has generally opposed gun control though as joe mentioned he has been talking a lot mm -hmm. about trying to stamp out gun violence well and he, and he has talked about a balance that i'm using his exact words when i talked to him a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago but in any effect i mean as you're looking on this as leaving the legislature and this is something that you're lamenting. Once you're gone, do you still expect to be involved in some of these issues, or what do you expect to be doing? I spent, I'd say, 25 years prior to being elected advocating for things that I, that I felt would, would be in the best interest of the people of Missouri, and I plan to be uh, continue advocating. Do you expect to run for office again on something else? I I probably will run for office again, but um, you know, I'm I'm not necessarily <laughs> ready to say which one. Okay, yeah. Rats. We, we have yet to have somebody on our show who actually announces for the next office. Yeah. So we'll have to wait for another. Oh, we've time. had one or two, but we won't have to get into yeah. that. Yeah. Now, but before you're leaving, you're going to the Philadelphia with Jason and a whole heck of a lot of Democrats at the end of July. And you're going to be a delegate. This is your I first am. time. First time to go to a national democratic convention. Yes. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, I am very excited. Are to you be a going. Hillary delegate or a I Sanders a, delegate? I am a Hillary delegate. I um, have spent probably 25 years working to get more women elected to uh, government positions, and uh, have followed Hillary's career since the the 90s when she. Uh, was in the White House with her husband, and um, I, you know, the, the one thing when I uh, was running for the first congressional delegate position, I, I was saying it is, it is really important to me that we have a woman, but it's nice to be able to say I'm not voting, I'm voting for the very best candidate there is, uh, the one with the most experience and, uh, and leadership, and so I don't have to say I'm, you know, I'm voting for this person because she's a woman. I'm voting for her because she's the very best candidate. Now, it's going to be pretty expensive. And in fact, I was telling Jason about this because he's, have, he's facing the hotel <laughs> bill, the infamous hotel bill, which is roughly, what, eight, 800 a it, night? It, it, I just got the bill a couple of minutes before the podcast started. Depending on which type of room you have, it ranges anywhere from, I think, 550, 560 to 730. I, I, and that's I, before taxes. I, I believe so. And I think I'm going to obviously try to get the least expensive room since I'm only one person. But I haven't. As of I as of this moment in time, that is not set in stone yet. Now, just so our listeners know, this is, I mean, this is significantly higher. I would say arguably say about twice as much as what Democrats uh, delegates had to pay in Charlotte uh, four years ago. This just kind of shows how the... Um, inflation on some of the uh, convention costs on both sides. I'm going to the Republican convention and it's the hotel room is a lot cheaper, but we're also an hour away from the convention hall. In you guys' case, you're just going to be a few blocks away. 
how, I mean, are you going to bankroll it yourself or using some of your uh, raising money? I've seen at least one delegates putting out an appeal for donations. I'm just interested how you're doing this. I plan to, um, to bankroll it myself, I guess. Uh, I'm not going to use my campaign funds, but, um, yeah, it's pretty outrageous. Uh, I, when I first got the, the, uh, information, I, I called the, the uh, Courtyard Marriott in Philly, Philadelphia, and I just asked what a room would be for the following week, and they told me it was around $200. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, okay, that's quite a markup there. But um, I heard they it's can a, do it. It could be a situation because they're trying to take advantage of the fact that all these people are coming could just be proximity to the convention hall because right. everybody I've talked to has said this is a very convenient location compared right. to others. Joe, for example, is going to the Republican convention in Cleveland right. and the Republicans are staying in Akron, Ohio, which is 45 or 50 minutes away. Right, right. I mean, they were assigned, just so listeners understand, the delegations don't just decide, oh, I'm going to be at the Courtyard right. Marriott. Oh, no, the national parties, they have a grid and they pick like, okay, because there's 50 states and plus some islands and Puerto Rico and whoever. So they decide where these delegations are going to stay. So it's all about relationships or political power. And what intrigues me is that for at least the last 10, 12 years, the Missouri Democrats, because of various reasons, different people claim who it is, but I think in 2004 it was definitely Dick Gephardt. But the bottom line is they always had pretty decent hotels, very close the Republicans in a state that's allegedly a Republican state as far as the presidential candidates, Missouri Republicans have been getting hosed for decades. <laughs> I mean, for decades, at least, at least we're staying in a Hilton this time. And I will say in 2008, we were in, in St. Paul, we were in a very, very uh, primitive hotel. And it was so bad that some of the major Republican figures in the state, I will not mention them, Refuse to stay there. Uh-huh. That's well, how bad it we was. We have spent way too much time talking about the hotel. <laughs> What's your expectations for the actual convention? Because, I mean, it, unless there's a miracle upon miracles, Hillary Clinton is going to be the nominee. But Bernie Sanders supporters are still going to have a pretty significant presence there, including in the Missouri delegation where they're going to compose about half of it. What are kind of your general expectations given those, given those variables? I'm... You know, I'm going to base my statements on, like, the state convention because uh, the state convention uh, actually had more Bernie delegates that attended, like, 450 to 325. Does uh, that show Hillary. the level of in, greater enthusiasm for Sanders than, than for Hillary still in I, I think it, it does show enthusiasm for, for the Bernie, from the Bernie group. And they also were very— um, I think intent upon trying to get some uh, concessions as far as the resolutions, um, the party platform, the the party platform, and then there were four members of the DNC that were uh, elected, and um, the Bernie people were able to get their entire slate yeah. elected, which you know they all everyone gave a speech, uh, all eight candidates gave a speech. I thought that um, 
there was a lot of enthusiasm and uh, energy in the speeches that they gave, um, the Bernie people gave. This will be for the next election, uh, the, the next convention, so in 2020. And in a way, I think there's some, uh, there, it's, it's nice that we're going to have a, a new group that comes in with fresh eyes and enthusiasm. And so I think that's probably going to be pretty good for uh, the Democratic Party. It's not, you know, I, I, I did not vote for all them, but I still, you know, think that's, that it's a positive thing. Yeah. I, and and I, the, my, what came out of the state convention was um, the party platform was accept, uh, accepted by acclamation. So even though, uh, and the 20 or so planks that they listed, uh, I had no problem with all but uh, most of them. There were two that I was a little questionable, but they were the way they were worded, it was fine. And then we, um, and then uh, when the delegates all got together, we, we voted by acclamation that Roy Temple would lead our delegation. That was also a positive sign. And so I think that the... Uh, national convention that the the Bernie de delegates are uh, uh, their mission is to to look to the to the future for the Democratic Party and to uh, make sure that these uh, these planks are in place fifteen dollar an hour or work toward fifteen hour uh, dollar an hour wages uh, climate change um, solutions and uh, there were quite quite a list but yeah and and just my observation as being there. I've heard other conventions elsewhere have gotten a lot testier. There were some skirmishes over the audio system, which right. actually took a really long time to resolve. <laughs> yeah. But generally, I found that, I mean, the Bernie Sanders people had more people there. So they were going to prevail on something. Right. And I think the Hillary Clinton people knew that that was the case. So I think that made the convention more harmonious than maybe, say, Nevada was because they showed up and frankly the clinton people which i i will call them shorthand like you showed up because i mm -hmm. saw you there and i chatted mm -hmm. with you but a lot of them didn't for some mm -hmm. reason and the consequence is you have four dnc members from missouri who are aligned with sanders including a professional wrestler named curtis <laughs> wild right who happened to channel owen hart in his speech <laughs> which i found very entertaining but what, what do you think that's going to mean for the party that for in the next four years the, the DNC representatives, save for Brian Wabi, who is an at-large person, are going to be aligned with Sanders and not Clinton. Well, I imagine they're going to uh, – one of the planks was to, to, to move t more toward uh, individual delegate representation and away from the superdelegate uh, piece of, of our delicate selection. And I think that is, uh, they, they will probably be pushing for that. And that's a, actually a debate that I think would be good to have. But, you know, we put the superdelegates into place for reasons a and number of years ago. And Republican, yes, what's going on with the Republicans? They don't have right. superdelegates. They have a few little handful. And I think uh, without taking sides, I think because of that, that's when one of the reasons they're in the position they're in right, right now. Let's say Donald Trump had run for the Democratic nomination. Yeah. I could imagine that would be an instance where the superdelegates would be like, I'm sorry, right. Donald Trump is not going to be our right. nominee. We're going to have somebody else there. Right. 
So I, I think the superdelegates are there, and I think that's a, a good discussion. The, you know, what, what happened this year, um, uh, Secretary Clinton was able to get enough uh, votes and delegates that she had the majority and so it wouldn't have mattered. The superdelegates don't really Well, and she got matter. more votes from the public. From the public. And, right. and, if you and, look she, at the... and she had more uh, pledged delegates. Yeah. So yeah. If, if, if Sanders had somehow won the nomination through the strength of superdelegates, it would effectively be overturning the results of the right. primary. Yes. Right. Now, obviously, if it was very close, like it was basically tied with pledged delegates, right. it would be another story. But it's not. Yeah. So, um, but still, as you mentioned, um, and as I mentioned, too, they are going to play a pretty significant role in the convention, at least with the platform, right. because a lot of their ideas, I think a lot of Hillary Clinton supporters like, some don't like all their ideas, mm-hmm. but I think they're going to be a factor. I, I think they are, too. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that uh, the Sanders campaign is pushing is free public edu- uh, college education for for all students, which I think is a wonderful idea. But at the same time, you have got to convince 500 and some odd uh, legislators, uh, congressmen and senators, that that's a good investment of our of money. And, and um, I think that there are going to have to be a lot of people that change before they're going to, to go with that. But I do think there are definitely things that can happen, like uh, changing the interest rate for college loans. Uh, right now, I think it's maybe 8%, which yes. is, and the government's making money on that. That's outrageous. And I think, I think um, you know, uh, uh, Secretary Clinton as president would, would be working very hard to make sure that changed, as well as uh, moving forward on lowering the, the cost of college for students. Well, we want to just thank you for coming in and also thank you for your legislative service. We'll, we'll have to have you back on the show if you ever run for anything again. Sure. <laughs> uh, for, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at? Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And are you on Twitter, Representative? I am. Margo McNeil. Uh, I think that's my Twitter handle. So if you just, just type in Margo McNeil and you'll... You'll, I should pop up. And that's I love M-C-N-E-I-L. Twitter. M-C-N-E-I-L. M-C-N-E-I-L. That's right. important. There yeah. are M-C-N-E-A-L. And so. I-L-L. And there's lots of different spellings of McNeil. But, so it's uh, one L, one I. Yeah. And, oh, thankfully, only one spelling of Rosenbaum for now. Right. <laughs> we'll be back next time. Until then, so long. La, 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 la. I got water and I got holes.